You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're starting a two-part series with our very special guest, Ron Wilkerson. How's it going, Ron? It's going fine. Cool. Now, for those people who don't know, you've written for both Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Voyager. Is that right? Yes, I wrote for both of those, and I also wrote for Stargate SG-1. For those fans out there, those gate fans. Cool. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Max and I are sort of Stargate illiterate, but... uh, (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I have said on many occasions, I will get around to it. It looks really cool. (laughs) Uh, It's worth it. I know I, I know it is. I've seen I've seen good stuff. It's just there's a lot of backstory there I need to get to. Yeah, and you got to start you got to start at the beginning like any series. You got to get do it from the beginning. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But we're very familiar with your your work on Star Trek and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But first, um next week we're going to be discussing uh your your new novel which is called uh, Houdini and Lovecraft: The Ghost Rider. Um do you want to give people sort of an idea of what that's about? Well, um, uh, we're going to go into it in, in great detail next week, but uh, it's a novel that I based on a screenplay that I had written about 10 years ago, and the screenplay made its way around the studios and almost had a deal, and as often happens, deals fall through. But I really liked the story a lot, and I thought, um, I thought it deserved uh, to be fleshed out a little bit more. It's basically a historical fiction. Uh, I was really intrigued by the idea that Harry Houdini and H.P. Lovecraft actually collaborated back in the 1920s. Houdini used uh, Lovecraft to write one of his uh, story ideas that he had. And I thought, well, what if we kind of take that relationship a little bit further? And so basically, I took them and put them into uh, an adventure story that starts out as a haunted house and goes much further beyond than that. And uh, I'm happy with the way it turned out. And I published it, uh, I guess, in November on Amazon. And it's available there for uh, in Kindle download or for um, in paperback, and so that's really all I'll say about it for now. We'll save some of the mystery for next time, but it's uh, it's a rousing adventure story, and I hope your fans check it out. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, it sounds very interesting to me. And I'm a big Lovecraft fan. That's and and it's right up our alley. So yeah, absolutely. It, I'm excited. Yeah. So so Good. so we'll we'll be talking about that next time. So Star Trek. <laughs> You, you've you written um, either the stories or, or the, the screenplays for uh, seven episodes. Um, just, just so that people have an idea, I'm, I'm just going to go down the list. Um, uh-huh. You've written the screenplays for uh, Lessons from Next Generation and uh, Learning Curve for Voyager. That's uh-huh. right. Right. And then, and then you've written the stories for Imaginary Friend, Schisms, and Lower Decks for Next Generation and then Fair Trade and Ashes to Ashes for Voyager, right? That's right. Okay. Now, um, out of all of those, which one are you the most proud of? Which, which do, you, do you feel uh, successfully conveyed what you were trying to, uh, to get across? Well, you know, if you talk to any writer about their work, you know, we all we look at our episodes kind of like our children, and so it's like, which one is your favorite child? You know, it's it's a tough choice. You know, today I happen to be particularly high on lessons because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Star Trek uh, Online 
picked lessons is one of the top ten best Trek romances. Today's Valentine's Day. And, uh, ah. They chose that episode and the relationship between Captain Picard and Nella Darren is one of the top ten romances on all of Trek. And we ended up being number three behind only. Number two was Riker and Troy. And number one was Kirk and the Enterprise, of course. <laughs> one of Kirk the and the romances. Enterprise. One of the great romances in Star Trek history. <laughs> I want to read that slash fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess lessons, uh, today I'm particularly high on lessons, but I, you know, I love them all because they all have a place in my heart. Well, that's, that, I mean, I love lessons. Lessons is really high on, on my list. Thanks. I just stand out next gen episodes. Thank you. I, I, I agree. You know, I mean, um, like thinking about it, you know, go, going back and thinking about when when I first saw it, it, it really struck a chord with me. Uh, and um, it does something that, you know, we, we really haven't seen, which is, you know, a, a romance for, well, a romance period on Next Generation. You know, that, that, those were few and far between. But well, there were a lot of romances, but you didn't really buy most of them. I guess that's true. I guess that's the difference. Riker you know, hooked up with a lot of aliens. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but but with this one, it, it, you, you really uh, felt for Picard, you know. Yeah. Well, it was an important uh, it was an important part of his development, uh, and really, it was suggested to us uh, vaguely by uh, Jerry Taylor and Michael Piller. And we were uh, I was with my co-writer Gene Mathias. We were freelancing for a Trek, and uh, uh, we had had an episode earlier in the sixth season called Schisms that uh, we were supposed to write the um, teleplay for, uh, and it, it was slated for I think episode <clears throat> eight or nine in the season, something like that, and. What happened is once they got into development and into production on that season, Paramount felt that they needed a more action-oriented uh, episode earlier in the season. And so what happened is they bumped schisms up to, I think, episode number five. Uh, and it was on a much tighter deadline. And so we didn't get to write the teleplay for that. And it was kind of a, a disappointment. So to kind of make up for that and to kind of give us a little bit of a, throw us a bone to give us a chance at another episode, Jerry... Uh, Taylor suggested uh, the concept of an inter-office romance, that Michael Piller had actually uh, come up with the concept of wanting Picard to have an inter-office romance. But they hadn't really developed, uh, nobody on staff had really been able to develop a, a take on it. And so she said to us, see if you can do something with that. And that was the genesis of, of how the episode began. As as much as I as I like schisms, I, I I'm sort of glad that you know <laughs> that that uh, someone else ended up writing it so that you got the shot at lessons because I mean lessons is fantastic you know that's one of the best Thanks. episodes of season six and Thanks. season six is my favorite season by I, far. Well, I mean, like there are episodes where like uh, there are episodes of, of Next Gen that if I were telling somebody you need to watch Next Star Trek, where I would say you don't have to watch that. A lot of season one falls into that category. <laughs> Yep. But like lessons is like like you have to see that before you get to the movies. It was it was an important development for Picard because he had had romances, but they were either with you know people who were unattainable, or they were you know like on the inner light, you know something that happened really mm -hmm. to somebody else on another planet. And so he had, hadn't, other than Vash, he hadn't really had a, a direct romance himself, and you never had a feeling that uh, that Vash was really into him so much as she was using him. Uh, and, and they wanted him to have a real romance, and that's why we brought Nella into it. And, and the complication, complicating factor that Michael wisely realized when he uh, developed that initial concept was an inter-office romance and all the things that, that, that is involved in inter-office romance of you know the captain having a romance with someone under his command. And then, of course, 
the worst part of that was having to potentially send that person on a mission in which they might not come back. So that was uh, it was a very uh, interesting uh, episode from the standpoint of Picard's personal development. Yeah, and and the other thing that it does, which um, you seem to do a lot with your your episodes, is it brought in elements from uh, previous episodes, you know, which is something that, I mean, I know that's a standard TV thing to do, but it's not something that you see on um, Star Trek very often. Yeah, it's, you know, continuity as a thing. (laughs) Yeah. I I assume that you're referring to the the musical aspect and the flute that uh, Picard played in the episode The Inner Light, Uh, and uh, that really was the element that sold the episode. and got us the shot of doing it. We we it was a the development of it was a little bit uh, as all episodes they go through a birthing process. <laughs> it's not always so pleasant. Uh, we <laughs> ran with the idea of an interoffice romance. We came back and we pitched uh, Jerry Taylor and I, I think it was just Jerry and, and Ron Moore was the other person that was in the meeting at the time. Uh, and we pitched them our take on it and. <laughs> Jerry liked one aspect of it, Ron liked another aspect of it, and before you knew it, they were arguing, <laughs> which is the worst possible position for a, you know, a freelancer to be, you know, is to have execs on, on the show arguing about your idea, and it didn't look like it was going anywhere. And Basically, we called a timeout and said, let us go back and, and look at the thing again and see if we can come in with a different take on it, because the music wasn't originally an aspect of, uh, of the story. Uh, and uh, what ultimately happened is we... Um, uh, went back to the drawing board, and uh, I, I realized uh, the episode The Inner Light was an important episode for Picard in that he, uh, you know, it was a real romance, and I thought that the flute was a really nice kind of holdover from that episode, that he would be playing the flute as an expression of his lost love and, and love for, for the, the woman that he had in that episode. And so that's, that's really where, the, where the, the thing came from. So we pitched music as, uh, as the thing that would bring this new love, this new inner office romance together with Picard, that, uh, and that became the, uh, the selling point. It, is that something that you um, consciously try to bring into uh, your stuff? I mean, it, it, it really does seem lacking in, in most places in Star Trek, but I mean, like just thinking about, um, you know, like Lower Decks by bringing in, you know, Ensign Cito or, uh, uh, you know, on um, Voyager with with learning curve, dealing with the uh, you know the the Maquis thing. Do you uh-huh. consciously try to bring in elements from you know earlier in the series, or is that just sort of a coincidental thing? No, I think uh, like I said, we weren't on staff at the time that we developed those episodes, so we you know we we have about as much insight to the show as anybody watching it. <laughs> you know, we have production notes and we have the writer's bible and we have you know some things uh, episodes that might be currently in development. But at a certain point, they even stopped giving that out because it started getting it started showing up at fan conventions. So. <laughs> We, as, as writers, as freelance writers, you know, very often you're in the dark. You, know, you know, don't know much more about the show than a fan would watching the show. And so what we tried to do is we tried to use elements of previous stories uh, that gave us kind of a door into a new episode that we would be writing. And that's why uh, when we came back to Jerry uh, with the idea of, uh, of using the music from the inner light and using Picard's uh, flute from the inner light as, as a sort of bridge to a new romance, that's why that seemed to work. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, we're jumping ahead to Lower Decks, but that was an episode that we basically 
sold without really any prior connection to a, a previous episode. It was only when we were first, uh, or once we were into the story meetings that we had sold the episode that uh, I think it was Ron Moore brought up the, we were talking about who these young people on, in the Lower Decks might be, and I think it was Ron Moore that brought up the idea of Ensign Cito, uh, who we all liked from uh, the episode, I think it was called The First Duty, uh, yeah. that was a Wesley episode. And, uh, and we thought, well, what, you know, we know what Wesley's path had been, you know, in, in the, you know, getting onto this enterprise after that episode, <clears throat> what might have happened to Cito. And so we were able to bring her in, and because she was a Bajoran, we were also able to bring in uh, the B story, which is the, uh, the Cardassian story. So in a way, like I said, if you're a freelancer, if you're any writer, really, you, you try to connect to some degree uh, with previous episodes in order to uh, bring some continuity to the show. Uh, you know, we don't want to think that these characters haven't been changed by their experiences. We want to think that our characters have, you know, don't just start out with a clean slate every week. And the holdover of Picard's lost love from the inner light was a very important aspect to our story. I think it was important to fans, too. I found it very edifying that somebody finally addressed how significant that must have been. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> you don't just have something like that happen to you and then walk away from it without really uh, you know, having it affect you. And, and yeah. I think that was what we were able to play in, in the episode. So I guess moving on to Lower Decks, since we were kind of talking about it, um, I, I think both Max and I are in agreement that that's one of the very best episodes of Star Trek, you know, I mean, it's 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 right up there. And uh, since you didn't actually write the screenplay for that episode, how satisfied are you with the finished product? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, that was another one that we were in a time crunch. Uh, it's it's funny because we were um, uh, the, well, we we pitched it and they bought the pitch right away because they really liked what we what we had to offer in that story. And then once we started developing it, I think the network got excited about it, too. And again, it kind of got bumped up a little bit, as I recall. And uh, that's why they gave it to uh, Renee Ecovaria to, uh, to do the, uh, the actual teleplay. But we were, you know, the teleplay was very much reflective of our, of our story that we developed. Uh, it, it was pretty much note for note. The, the major addition that Renee did was uh, the character of Ben, the bartender, who was kind of a, a Guinan uh, stand-in with the, with the young guys. And, uh, and that was really the, the, the major change. But other than that, it was, um, it was pretty much as we had uh, written it out in our story outline. Uh, when you write a story outline for track, it's a pretty detailed document and, and pretty much says what the episode's going to be. And that's, when you write a story, that's, that's the, uh, the thing that you end up with is a story outline. It's about a five, six, seven page uh, document that tells the story from beginning, middle to end. But I was really happy with it. Um, I mean, I know TV writing is is all about you know collaboration. You know, there, there's so many so many people involved in in each of these things. Um, and I mean, you worked with a writing partner. Uh, it looks like for for most of your your career, or at least with Star Trek. With Star um, Trek, yes. Yeah, is that is that important to you to have collaborators? Um, well, if, if, if first of all, if you're writing for TV, you're going to be collaborating. If, and really, if you're writing in Hollywood, you're going to be collaborating uh, because there are lots of other people that are involved in in the project. And certainly on television, you're you're collaborating not even with a writing partner necessarily, but you're certainly collaborating with the writing staff, the uh, the producers and the writers on staff, as well as the executive producer, showrunner. Uh, and so you you get used to it, and you get used to. Uh, um, 
taking their ideas and incorporating their ideas into your story. And nine times out of ten, uh, they help you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Collaboration is the good thing. And where Gene and I basically just started out as fans of Star Trek, and uh, uh, we thought that you know we, we wanted to write for the show, and we wrote a couple of we wrote a spec script and submitted it to the show and got rejected. And we wrote a second spec script, submitted it, got rejected. Uh, but eventually that second spec script was resubmitted once we had a better agent and it got us a pitch meeting. But we basically started collaborating just because we were, you know, we were friends and we uh, loved the show and uh, thought we could thought we could write for it. So collaboration is is a very important thing if you want to write in television. It's good. It's a good idea to get used to the idea that your ideas are going to be shared and sometimes changed. I mean. Um, I, one of the one of my favorite uh, uh, remembrances of uh, of lessons is our first story meeting, where we were really fleshing it out in the break session. Uh, the, the the way it began with Picard uh, kind of being uh, trying to do a number of different things late at night and kind of being stymied again and again by somebody in the stellar science uh, office. Uh, that was Jerry Taylor's idea, and it, it was basically introducing them through conflict. And when I first, our first story meeting, I, uh, I thought, oh, this isn't going to work at all. I didn't like it. I wasn't into it. And uh, and I slept on it and came back the next morning. I thought, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. It really worked. And, uh, you know, sometimes it just takes, you have to get over your own ego. And sometimes you just have to uh, realize that the other people that you're working with truly do have the best interests of the show in mind uh, and that you know they're not trying to screw you over they're not trying to uh, you know dominate you or take over your story they're really trying to, to tell the best story they can so collaboration is uh, as I said nine times out of ten a really good thing I I guess you know kind of like spinning off of that um, out, of, out of the the episodes that you did not write the, the the scripts for are there any which were drastically changed from your original idea um, I would think uh, the, the very first one that we did, Imaginary Friend, uh, the Imaginary Friend was a very different kind of character. It wasn't another little girl. It was kind of like more of a, of a grandfatherly figure that was, was kind of like a, a Rumpelstiltskin, kind of a troll-type troll character that became the Imaginary Friend of this little girl. And, and they changed. That was really the biggest change. That changed to another girl that was her own age. And that, that story played out a little differently because of that. But, uh, um, but for the most part, the other ones, schisms played out exactly as we had envisioned it. Uh, and um, uh, I think Fair Trade was the other one that we didn't write the uh, teleplay for that played out pretty much as, as we had expected. Yeah. And Ashes to Ashes, was that a um, similar situation? or? Oh, gosh. You had to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> Ashes to Ashes is, uh, is my, one of my least uh, pleasant uh Experiences. I don't want to go, go into great detail on it, but it, it it's your least favorite child. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's the uh, redheaded stepchild. Is that what they call it? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it, the uh, the concept changed a lot uh, uh, from the initial uh, the initial story that I that I pitched, and I, you know it's it's effective in its own way, but I, I really had it going a different way. And I, I know that on, on Stargate SG One, you, you've did a lot of writing as well. Um, yep. were, were you ever in, in a situation where the, the tables were turned and you were rewriting someone else's work? Well, yes. When you're on staff on a show, uh, you are uh, necessarily uh, more involved in 
manipulating is the, is the worst possible word to use, but uh, but adding your thoughts to stories. And I, I know that uh, uh, that I was in that position on, on various stories, that I, I was able to influence the story in a different direction. But again, uh, I don't think uh, that that you know it ended up differently in a way that was not acceptable to the to the writer. Uh, so yes, I've been involved in on both sides of the of the uh, coin. The other episode that that you you wrote the the script for, which we didn't really get to yet, was a uh, learning curve, which was sort of the default season finale for season one of Voyager. Well, what what, what are your thoughts on that one? To some degree, that grew out of Lower Decks. Our, our concept with Lower Decks was Starship Enterprise has you know hundreds, I guess maybe even over a thousand people on it. I can't recall the exact number. And for seven seasons, you know, we really hadn't seen many of those folks. We had really seen our major cast, and of course, that's where we want to concentrate. But I really thought, let's tell the story of the little guy, and that was basically the pitch that we went into with Lower Lower Decks. Let's look at let's look at an episode play out from the point of view of of these junior officers, the people that don't get to sit at the uh, at the card table with Riker and Troy and Data, the people that don't get to go on the bridge, but for occasionally. And one of my concepts of it was that in that episode, it would be really cool never to go on the bridge, is to just basically see the whole episode play out on the lower decks and in, in Ten Forward or wherever, you know, other, other crew quarters uh, might play. And for the most part, it did play out that way. And I think the fans really liked it a lot. I know Michael Piller liked it. He told us it was his favorite episode of, of the final season of Next Generation, uh, which was very generous. And uh, so we knew that there was a fan base built around that show, the way it turned out. And so to some degree, when Voyager came along and we had the intermix of these two different cultures, we had the, the, the Voyager crew that was for the most part Starfleet, and then we had the Maquis that were uh, the opposite of Starfleet. They were you know, the renegades and the rebels who basically... Uh, had no Starfleet training, and yet they had to integrate those two crews onto one ship. And we felt that that really hadn't been dealt with, uh, and we pitched a number of different episodes, but the one that we ended up getting through was Learning Curve. And the concept of it was that these Maquis, for the most part, some of them have been able to fit in well on the ship, but quite a few others may not. And you know they might have even been more rebellious than the ones that were able to fit in, like Chakotay or Balana. And uh, and so we thought, wouldn't it be cool to come up with, and this was the, the pitch, uh, again, the line in the pitch that basically got the episode sold was a Starfleet night school. It was kind of like the Starfleet extension program to sort of bring these guys in the Maquis up to Starfleet standard and basically integrate them uh, into, the, into the ship a little bit better. So that's, that's the genesis of that episode. Max and I have both sort of gone on record as being not the biggest fans of Voyager in the world, and uh-huh. you know one of one of the big problems that we have with it is the fact that uh, they abandoned the they abandoned the Starfleet integration concept pretty much right uh-huh. after your episode. Um, right, I guess right. they figured you you touched on everything that ever needed to be touched on. You did it so perfectly <laughs> that uh, it never needed to be brought up again. But uh, yeah. Tuvok's an exceptionally good teacher. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but what? How, how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously, it, it must be something that intrigued you if you you know dedicated an episode to it. Uh, do you wish you could have gone back and, and dealt with that some more, or or what's the deal with that? Well, I do, uh, and I do think that we pitched. I can't, I'm not exactly remembering, but I do think that we pitched some other episodes involving some of those characters. But 
sometimes you pitch things and they just don't get they don't get bought, and uh, uh, that was one of the one of the times that we were not able to really push that forward, and so we had to go other directions with the show. Um, but uh, but you know I I like that concept of of uh, of having characters that are not your regular characters interact with your main characters. Now obviously a show you know you have your main cast and they're paying them a salary so they want to put them in front of the camera all the time and I understand that. But from a fan standpoint and from a story standpoint, sometimes you have to take a step back and bring in other characters. And that also allows a level of danger that doesn't exist in, uh, in a show that's all about your main characters. I mean, we know that, you know, uh, for the most part, all those main characters are going to be back next week. Even though they go through hell or high water, they're going to be back the next week. And with a guest cast like we did in Lower Decks and with, like we did in Learning Curve, it's not a guarantee that they're going to make it through to the next episode. So it brings in an element of danger that uh, that you don't get with a normal cast. Getting back to learning curve for for just a minute, there's an issue which we we would like to address and sort of I don't know come to your defense on or what. But there's there's <laughs> okay. a thing there there's a thing in that episode which has become sort of a, a almost a meme in in the Star Trek fan community, and that is the the cheese element. <laughs> Both Max and I are of the opinion that that is a perfectly reasonable, actually probably much more reasonable explanation for this scientific mumbo jumbo than than what they usually come well, up with. Well, I mean, Voyager had a lot of like, <laughs> oh no, the wormhole got angry at us, <laughs> and yeah. and it's like there's a lot of you know sort of nonsense that's being spewed, and then you just go like, I guess fine, they turned into bats, whatever. <laughs> yep, you uh-huh. know, and 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 there it's like. That seems reasonable. Okay, yeah, the biogel got infected. That that seems yeah. plausible. Uh, well, I was just going to say the the bioneural thing. Uh, I, again, it came from the writer's guide. Is when they were developing Voyager, they developed this concept, and I don't know if, whether it was Narain Shankar who was the science advisor or, or or who developed that concept, but it was the idea that they have these gel packs that are critical to the computer and, and operation systems of the of the ship. And they're bio. Uh, there's they're actually living uh, organisms that are that are developed to actually be able to think their way around various problems. And so again, when we're looking for okay, here's the A story is you know Tuvok is night school, <coughs> Starfleet night school with these kids. What is the B story? What's going to be the danger to the ship? And uh, we just thought it would be really cool if you know Voyager was not really meant to be in deep space. It was uh, during I think a shakedown. Cruise, right? It was like a newly out of out of space dock or something like that. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the technology on it had not been field tested extensively, and we thought, well, the bioneural being a living thing, it would be really cool if they got a disease or you know, we made it. We wanted to make it something really mundane that would cause major problems on the ship, and so that's where we got came up with the idea of what if they catch a cold. And uh, and how would they catch a cold? Well, there's going to be all kinds of of because they're in a different quadrant. There's obviously going to be different bacteria and different viruses that are in that quadrant. We thought, well, we're going to have uh, Neelix make some cheese out of some, you know, schlicked, I think was the thing we came up with for the milk that was brought aboard. <laughs> Again, try to throw a little bit of an element of comedy into the episode. Because uh, we wanted to, I, we thought it would be fun to see this high and mighty starship brought down by something very insignificant. And, see, uh, and so that's where that came from. I, I, and, we, I and we also really like the idea of get that cheese to sick bag. Exactly. That was <laughs> I, I, I an think important that, element of the show. 
I think that totally worked. You know, it, it was very funny, and and you know, I, I I appreciated it quite a bit. I don't quite understand why everyone has such a big problem with it, but well, I'm a big science guy. I'm very into science, and and there are episodes of that show where they throw all logic and all science and all mathematical reasoning skills out the window. And well, when they no, say, no comment on that. Okay, but I mean, like in the second episode, they find a tear in the event horizon of a black hole, and that is such gibberish. It only works as a joke. Uh-huh. And 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 get the cheese to sick bay seems so reasonable by comparison. I just go, well, yes, that you. makes sense. That seems like a reasonable course of action. You would take the cheese to sick bay. Good point. <laughs> I agree, Janeway. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. Okay. So you said that you were a Star Trek fan um, prior to the show. Were, were you a fan of the original series growing up, or? Uh, Absolutely. Generation? Yeah. I I can't say that I saw it. it was you know it was on. TV when I was pretty young, uh, its first run, and uh, and so I didn't really see a lot of episodes. But I saw it uh, after college. It, you know, it seemed to just run constantly, every day, and so I became a huge fan of it uh, in its reruns. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so you know, I got to like most Star Trek fans, like I could recite dialogue along with all the characters, and uh, have my have my favorites of the original show. But no, I was a huge fan of that show. And then it was such a such a nice. Uh, surprise when Next Generation came along, and really, I think uh, was an, a nice, uh, you know, improvement upon the original in in many respects, while still retaining the flavor of the original and not, you know, because Gene's Gene Roddenberry's canon was so strong uh, and his his concept was so strong, it still had that Star Trek feel to it, even though it's a different ship and different crew. So, as as a Star Trek fan, um, what what do you think about where it is now? What do you think about uh, the the latest movie and and into darkness you know the upcoming movie and all that stuff oh i was afraid you were going to ask <laughs> mike get your finger over the bleep button <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i like the idea of looking at kirk and spock and mccoy and scotty as iconic characters that can play, be played by different actors i like that idea uh you know they are like uh, sherlock holmes or a james bond they're they're characters that are so strong that they they do survive that kind of translate translation into into different uh situations and i i like for the most part i like the cast of the of the new of the new movie uh movies have to do different things than tv shows and i think this is one of the reasons that the the new the newer the one that came out a couple of years ago star trek movie was fundamentally different. It was far more action-oriented. It was bigger. It was more bombastic. And and in some respects, to me as a longtime fan, it didn't feel as much like Star Trek. There was no big philosophical issue. And this was one of the things that Michael Piller always stressed to us. And he was really, you know, he carried the lantern for Gene, <laughs> for Gene Roddenberry's uh, uh, ethic. Is that episodes had to be about something? They had to be about the human condition. They had to be about something philosophical or uh, you know a big issue and i don't think that this new movie is is that i think it's moving into a more action oriented direction i'd love to see i think star trek should be a tv show personally i like movies i like the idea of the movies but i also think trek works really well as a tv show it's uh, on a week to week basis there are so many great issues, so many great philosophical and ethical issues you can get into. And that's what, that's what the best of Star Trek, The Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager did. The best of those episodes are the ones that really dealt with the human condition and, uh, and used the science fiction of, of the 21st century as a way of getting at what people are like today. And, uh, you know, I think that, that deserves to be on TV. 
Well, Ron, any any uh, final thoughts on your your time at Star Trek? Any? Uh... Well, I'm really proud of the the fact that I was able to work on the shows. I mean, in retrospect, the shows really stand up well. I, I every, every now and then I'll I'll be watching or flipping through channels and see Star Trek: Next Generation or Voyager or DS9 and flip on and and. You know, they hold up well. They're good shows. And uh, I'm proud of the work that I did on them. You know, I'm glad I was there, glad I was able to do it. Wish I had done more. I mean, we had actually written episodes uh, in the seventh season. We actually sold them two episodes. It didn't get on the air just because of one reason or another. Um, but um, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, I wanted to just say, like, I recently uh, watched all of Next Generation with my girlfriend. Uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, you know, soon to be fiance, and and we got to lessons, and after a long time of talking about possible wedding music and this and that, and like she brings up terrible options, and I'm like, no, not Madonna, not Madonna, no Madonna, that's not going to happen. And then uh-huh. she like we watched that episode, and she was like, what about that music? And I was like, that would work. Oh, that is so flattering. Well, Ron, where can people uh, find you if they if they want to? Uh, the uh, the best place to find me is my, on my website. Uh, that's ronwilkerson.com, R-O-N-W-I-L-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. And I have, um, uh, I have an essay, actually, that I wrote on the development of Lessons that's in my review section. If, you, if any of your fans are interested in reading about how Lessons came about and the development and all the various things that happened on that, uh, on that show, uh, they can read about it there. And I have various other essays up about I have a, a tribute to Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Doohan, who I worked with on a commercial project, and uh, found him just to be one of the nicest and decent, most decent people I've ever met in, in my life. And, and it was just a pleasure to be able to work with him. And I have a tribute to him on there. Uh, so check out my website. Cool. And then you're and also I'll, on... I'll keep, I'll keep posting new stuff. All right. And, and you're also on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter. Uh, Ron underscore Wilkerson. Okay, cool. And and the book is called Houdini and Lovecraft, The Ghost Writer, and you can find that on Amazon. Correct? Yes, you can. You can find it either by the title or by my uh, author page on Amazon. All right, and, and we will be talking about that next week. Uh, Look forward to that. Yeah, thanks again for joining us. As always, you can find us uh, at CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do our other show, or you can find us Trek.fm. at Trek.fm or on Twitter at ComTrackStars. Uh, so we will be back next week with Ron to discuss Houdini and Lovecraft, the Ghost Writer. <laughs>